Here is a uh, poem by Traktung Keppa. The unborn nature of reality does not deny appearance. It only denies birth. The unfolding of appearance has never actually implied even an iota of separative self. Apprehender and apprehended are just a bit of mistaken inference. That is, that which knows and that which is known are just a bit of mistaken inference. Look into it carefully and you will discover the substanceless, intangible magic of appearing never strays from wisdom's bright openness, like dreams in the nighttime mind. So when we're asleep, many things are vividly there in dreams, and by and large, you don't even know it's a dream. It's as real as anything. While this is all a true description, as true as conceptual language structure can make it, it matters not one whit unless you realize it. Make it real in the continuum of body, mind, and perceiving. The path exists for this purpose and no other. Body longs for the love known at the dawn of wisdom. A love known in and as life when wisdom dawns. Mind longs for the silence at the end of confusion. Feeling longs for the ease and tenderness of simplicity when ego-centeredness ends. Be ever so careful how you shape the longing that is your life. Ordinary longing crafts death from living. That is, ordinary longing, we are chasing after many things that all are going to vanish. And many of them vanish long, much sooner than we would like them to. Ordinary longing crafts death from living. Spiritual longing makes even greater life from death. So I thought I would organize my talks a little bit around a, uh, actually a kind of pithy teaching that you find in the Mahayana Sutras. And this is called sometimes the three mystic doors of liberation or the three gates of liberation. And I'm going to go through one in each of the next three talks that I do. The three mystic doors of liberation. And I like the word mystic because much of, can we call this a process? Much of this is not something we really can talk about, understand, grasp, or negotiate with our thinking minds, as dismaying as that may be to the thinking mind. So they're mystic, they're mysterious, they're beyond the rational. The three mystic doors are wishlessness, which I'm going to talk about today, conceptlessness, sometimes for the Buddhist nerds, this is translated as signlessness. Talk more about that later. So wishlessness, conceptlessness, and identitylessness. So wishlessness, 
there's a saying that this always brings to mind by one of the great teachers, Mazu. Mazu was um, known as Master Ma, one of the Chinese ancestors that is considered to be the power of this person's practice. The power of this person's vow is a large uh, factor in why Chan, which became Zen in Japan, um, rooted so deeply. And Mazu practiced in a time when there were Mongol invasions and the country was being, um, I don't know all the political details, but a lot of turmoil from what he called the barbarian invasions. And in response to the koan, the great way is without difficulty, which you're probably familiar with. The great way is without difficulty. Simply discard picking and choosing. That's it. In response to that, Mazu said, despite my difficulties for 30 years, I have not lacked for salt or sauce. So imagine that state of mind, 30 years of orioki, and not once letting your mind be moved around by where is the hot sauce? Or fill in the blank. Of course, it's a lot more profound than condiments. So what is the practice of wishlessness, and where does that door lead to? I also like the word wishlessness and wish because we don't use it outside of the usual context of, oh, I wish there was soy sauce, or I wish whatever. We kind of are like, wishing is sort of like a lazy prayer. I wish it was a little bit warmer, but we don't do much else than that, we just wish. But we are wishing. What wishes arise for you in this practice? I'll tell you some of the wishes that I've noticed in myself, and you can tell me if you see them inside of you. This mystic door of liberation is saying we need to um, pay these no mind. So one of them is comfort. A big one, the wish to be comfortable. In the five hindrances of Buddha Shakyamuni, that's in a way that is sensual desire. We wish to feel good. Not only do we wish to feel good, but we wish to only feel good. We have this immature demand, most of us, on the universe that we get the good half and we don't get the bad half. We've divided it into what I like, what I don't. You've heard this story and you've heard how heaven and earth are rent apart thereafter. So not wishing to be comfortable. That doesn't mean not adjusting your posture at the, at the wiggle bell. The demand to be comfortable is an obstacle to Stillness, yeah? When you start to go deeper in practice, you realize that even those little micro-adjustments you might do are an expression that divides, it renders the universe in two. 
It makes duality. It makes separation. You separate your body from your body. You separate your mind from your body. You separate your body from the universe. You separate. Everything is separated. One thing is separated. Everything is separated. Yeah. That's why the teachers say things like a single hair of discrimination and heaven and earth are sent to, uh, rent apart. It just takes one. One hair. I have a very hairy Zabutan. So comfort. Comfort is a wish that arises. You notice it. It's to be worked with. Or more... Uh, applicable, the wish for comfort arises, you pay it no mind. Until it's a break time and then you can go lie down, right? This is not asceticism. This is functional wishlessness. There's the wish for amusement. We wish for something cool to happen. We wish for there to be better sounds. We wish for a novel experience. In being denied amusement, but not letting go of the wish for it, the mind begins to entertain. And if you have one of those minds that is not unpleasant, some people have distracted minds that are actually very good at generating um, interesting content. you might notice that underneath the wish for amusement is discomfort. And one has to rest without wishing otherwise in the texture of the body. It's just a texture. We used to have a guy who came to session who, bless his heart, seemed like he spent most of the time preparing his stand-up routine for the end of session. So the wish to be amused, uh, the wish for confirmation, that is, we wish to know, is it going well? Where am I? Can I get some feedback? No. Maybe the teacher looks and smiles at me and I think, oh, I must have a good practice. Or they don't and I think, oh, clearly, clearly they don't get it. The wish for confirmation, this is no joke because we're putting our energy we're putting our life to some degree on the line here for this practice, and we wish to know that it's working. We wish to feel that there's progress. But as you've heard me say, to practice wholeheartedly is to lose the forest for the tree. And therefore, there's confirmation is basically an illusion. Related to that is the wish for understanding. It's not that perspective and wiser relationship to experience is not going to happen. But the wish to 
feel that uh, I've arrived at some understanding that I can now settle down into. Kind of like when you sit on your cushion and you dig your bum in there and you kind of want to do that with some understanding. The wish for status. The reason that there are all these different colored garments is just to irritate and bring forth in the human being the desire for status and just to see what the mind does around all of that. Right? It's a way of purifying a human beings' tendency to want to rank and get power through status. That's why I took Jukai. Joke. Kidding. Okay. So there are many, there are many other wishes. They might fall under this category. But you want to get in your mindfulness what wishes are arising because wishlessness is one of the mystic gates. Now wishes appear but do not arrive. Just like this moment appears but does not arrive. Just like a wave appears but does not arrive. You wouldn't say a wave has arrived. I don't know if I've ever heard someone say there's a breeze here. Maybe someone would say there's a breeze here, but usually would say the wind is blowing, right? This is how we can relate more freely to what comes up internally. It's just an appearance, it never arrives. In other words, a wish has as much power as we give it. If it's a deeper current in life, you don't have to worry about some meaningful drive in you being dried up by your session practice. I don't think you have to worry about that. Because this vessel we're in stimulates the um, arising of all that is so-called obstacle to realization. It's like a poultice. Some of you have heard me talk about that. Do you know what a poultice is? I used to get these terrible boils. It was so embarrassing. It was very good because then you... I, had to lose face. These giant boils on my neck at one point here in the monastery. They were very ugly. Couldn't do anything about it. Well, one of the things you can do about boils or things like that is you put clay on them. And what, and what a poultice is, a clay poultice, it, it sucks out impurities. So us sitting here in this posture with this intention and attention is a poultice. We are sucking forth the impurities of the heart. This is not a practice for those who are simply seeking well-being. This would be a terrible spa, don't you think? (laughs) 
So wishes appear, and I'm saying, oh, it's good that wishes appear. In other words, to use more Buddhistic language, craving, it's good to see like what kind of craving and attachments live in the heart. You have to, they have to arise in order for them to be related to as waves rather than arrivals. That has to happen. So wishlessness is the bones of samadhi. It's the beginning, or it's a one of the conditions that's there in that moment when we are in direct awareness, right? Wishlessness, here's the thing, we can infinitely wish for conditions that allure with a promise of being more optimal for practice. How to say that more simply? One can believe for very, very long that if only my body, my mind, my heart, the person sitting next to me, the zendo, etc., was more or less something, then I could finally do it. And you know what? If you believe that, you can put, take yourself off the hook. You can infinitely wish for conditions that allure with the promise of being more optimal. It's like life too. You might have some, something that um, would be beautiful and meaningful for you to bring forth into the world. But it's so easy, and many people do, rationalize about the conditions that would be finally optimal to do so, so that one doesn't have to be on the hook. Conditions aren't quite right. I'll just coast through this decade. I'll just coast through these eight days. It's not quite, it's not, this isn't the place it's going to happen. I'm not going to really be able to do it. It's bullshit, but it's hard to see that bullshit from the inside. So wishlessness as the bones of samadhi, we just cut that one out. Actually, those who have sat for significant amounts of time in uncomfortable or very uncomfortable conditions, in hindsight can look back and see that those difficult conditions of body, mind, or environment helped them root more deeply. It actually kind of pins you to the spot. The more specific our conditions for okayness, the less range of freedom we have. the less we can be with and enter into. But there need not be any moment where we unhook ourselves or where we throw in the towel. With wishlessness, this texture is just fine. This ache, this sleepiness, this excitement, this array of sounds, it's just fine. It'll work. The more specific our conditions for okayness, the less free we are.
So wishlessness is related to what we sometimes find articulated as no mind or non-discrimination. And that is an element that will be unfolded more explicitly, but it's basically non-preference. Choicelessness and non-preference might be a good, just good synonyms. In wishlessness, we're free to meditate on the sound of a rumbling truck motor. Or say one of the neighbors decides they're going to have a shooting party. We're free to meditate with that. With wishlessness. It might be perfect, actually. It might have you be really alert. There's a Tibetan teacher, one of those naughty Tibetan yogis who is known for, he had no, he could, he had no tolerance for the sanctimoniousness of monks in a particular monastery, and they thought they were very holy, so he would, during their sitting, go by and fire his hunting rifle to see who would lose their equanimity. So in wishlessness, we're free to meditate with whatever, whatever sounds come our way. And it's not, we're not talking about some kind of um, bite the bullet, I'll just passively accept the life that sucks. No. Wishing things were otherwise obscures the richness that is there. Wishlessness can be very subtle. Or wishing can be very subtle. We can want just a little bit more. Just a little. There can be just a, that, that hair. So sometimes it's helpful to say that we're in Dharma teachings looking at the discriminating mind and the ways it's pitiful, not because it's bad for a human being to have opinions. In a way, if you look at culture, most human beings can't deal with opinions without them being toxic. You see that in social media. Human beings are equipped with opinions, they've become toxic. But opinion in itself is just opinion. But the thing is, from the Dharma's point of view, the universe is so vast, it's so whole, and our discriminating mind is so pitiful in reference to that. Yeah? Our this shouldn't be happenings in the, in the grand scope of being, are, are pitiful. So entering the vessel of a spiritual practice is to intentionally limit. 
We don't talk about it that way so much. It's to intentionally limit the range of motion so that we can see how wishy we are. We intentionally pare down our ability to fulfill wishes so that we can actually see the wishiness. This is not to be mistaken for meek contentment. In order to practice this and not feel like someone else is subjecting it upon you, you have to see the wisdom in it. That's part of what all this, these words are about. Can you see the wisdom in wishlessness, how it liberates? If not, then it feels like an imposition. And one could actually resent it. Every teaching, when clung to as true, as an ultimate, becomes a new prison. There are no verbal teachings of the Buddha that you could say, this is true, and if you're not flexible with, doesn't become a source of suffering. Even the Four Noble Truths are not ultimate truths. If it was true that life was suffering, then why would we follow the Buddha? Actually, the Buddha discovered that life is not suffering. So we can't cling to wishlessness. While wishlessness is a gate into liberation, one walks through that gate because we have the wish to be liberated. This is something that's very important in my practice and that I try to share. The desire to wake up, in a sense, is everything. It's not like you're going to master a technique and the heavens are going to open. This is a matter of the heart. The wish to be liberated. So there are different facets of Dharma teaching. Sometimes in the classifications they say there are provisional teachings, like there are entry-level teachings, provisional teachings, so provisions are like what gets you through the night, right? Like if uh, you get provisions if you go on a hunting trip or if you're in the military, you have your provisions. It's enough to get by. Some of the Buddhist teachings are, are basically thought like they get you from point A to point B and once you eat them, then you're done with them. Then there's something called the definitive teachings, which are supposedly actually point at the nature of reality, but all words are just that. but there are different facets. So one might hear that Dharma is learning to be satisfied with the moment and one's life. I don't know if you've heard that. I have a kind of unreasonable distaste for pop Dharma. But the Buddha never taught such a thing. He actually said it would be wise, a wise person is profoundly dissatisfied with conventional life that it's a sham. It's a sham. The Buddhas and ancestors affirm heart's dissatisfaction with ordinary existence. This is why we, we have, you could read it mythopoetically, it might be literal. The Buddha left his good situation because it wasn't that good. 
Dogen Zenji says in kind of in my words, when the truth fills you up, you're dissatisfied. When the truth fills you up, you feel something is incomplete in you in the world. It's not right. A mystic of another tradition might say, divine longing is, is itself wisdom. Divine longing is itself the divine. We're not trying to just settle in some, be here now, everything is okay. That's wrong. That's not the Buddha's teaching. Everything is not okay. It doesn't mean you have to think something is wrong with you. I believe what Dogen and the Buddha is saying is that what the heart wants, the world of objects and experiences can only give surrogates of and temporary appeasements. We can, what is it called? Not acquiesce, but settle. There's a better word. We can concede. Thoreau or somebody said, most people live lives of quiet desperation. I would say quiet resignation. From a spiritual point of view, what the heart wants, the world of objects and experiences can only, at best, give temporary appeasements. And the problem is, is that unless you are a person of faith, you don't even believe there's an alternative. But not knowing there's an alternative is a kind of insanity. It's an insanity that's marketed as sanity. The sky has been stuffed into a thimble. Ordinary identity is a mistake and it will never feel right. It will never feel right. The restlessness of the heart is accurate wisdom. This is what I think the Buddha is saying when he says, the truth of dukkha. He didn't say the truth of you're not just accepting, you know, how your family life is. The truth of you're just accepting your job at Walgreens. No. He said the noble truth of dukkha. The restlessness of the heart is accurate wisdom. So we're, we do, we engage a kind of uh, mature alchemy here. On one hand, wishlessness. We are releasing, dissolving the, the demands that this moment be what we want it to be. And at the same time, the longing to go beyond limitation, the longing to open up, the words don't matter, simultaneously.
a description of the world is that the mind translates the heart's restlessness with this limited existence into the desire for contact with a new, different object or experience. Especially if we are not told how to work with our longing, if we're not affirmed that, no, nothing is wrong with you. You look out and see that it's all meaningless. Don't give that person a pill. Give them a cushion. But usually what happens is the heart's restlessness is simply translated into desire for a new object. People feel, often in adolescence, that deep sense that ordinary life is meaninglessness and they pay somebody some money and read some books and they go to grad school. Or they go to this country or that country. They take this or that up. Okay. You might come pretty close to scratching that itch. Or maybe I'm just talking about certain kinds of people. Probably there are many of you here who have this kind of um, heart restlessness. True nature is sometimes called a wish-fulfilling jewel. That's the jewel that you see in Jesus' uh, is it hands or yeah, sometimes in the hand. Wish-fulfilling jewel. Or awakening is a wish-fulfilling jewel. Sometimes I think, oh, if I get awakening, then whatever I want, I'll get. But in a way, it's kind of true. If you desire something long enough, you will work for it, and basically, through the force of karma, it will come your way. The mind does actually bring you what you want. I went through this weird phase when I was younger where I would want certain records, and then I would show up at a record store, and they'd be there in the bins. I don't know. Nothing magical there. But the wish-fulfilling jewel on another level means that the heart rests in itself. Of course there are hungers, of course there are appetites. This is not about becoming some kind of zombie that just sits on a cushion and drools. But the heart, even as it engages life, is at rest in itself. It's fulfilled in itself. It's not to be mistaken for stasis. That heart is expressive. So we're working with um, sound. Through sound, we enter the wishless. We wish to enter these sounds. These. This is, this is totally sufficient. You can't have an absence. All of the senses are always interpenetrated. It's like some kind of um, spiritual orgy. The senses are always completely full. There's no such thing as ear consciousness without an object of ear consciousness interpenetrating it. Just like with the eyes. You close them, they're filled with darkness and light. You open them, they're filled with forms. You plug your ears, it's filled with whatever kind of sound that is. You open them, it's filled with... Yeah. So we wish to enter these sounds, these.
and each moment everywhere and any now blending attention into whatever sounds are happening. So for example, carrying the practice outside of the zendo, you can make it a, a, an intent that each new environment you move into, let's say you move from outside to inside the cafeteria, first thing you do is you bring awareness to what is the soundscape now? Or yoki is over, you listen to the symphony of footsteps. Come in the zendo, you hear the birds, or you hear the lights, or whatever it is. And there will be many opportunities where a gate into wishlessness, a gate into sound samadhi, presents itself. Where there's some sound that is, is inviting. Sometimes we're going to be able to do a quality of one-pointed absorption. We'll have people playing some kind of drones at different times. There might be a piece of music. As your thinking mind diminishes, you'll many people begin to hear the nada sound, kind of shh. So sometimes we're one-pointed, sometimes we're open. I want to return to that image I shared last night. The image of, of a quality of effort. The power of samadhi doesn't build because of the desire to wake up. The desire to wake up causes the moment of samadhi, which builds on itself. And so the more we incline towards that direct contact with our object, in this case sound, it has an energy that begins to circulate in the body and just it just becomes its own current and so therefore continuity the continuity of contact to be in the mode of receptive listening as much as possible and this image is about that with the lamplight the cord and the plug so the lamplight is wakefulness the mind in some degree of wisdom awareness. Those of you who've read um, the sixth ancestor, Hui Neng, he says that um, samadhi and wisdom are like a lamp and its light. So meditative awareness, presence, direct awareness, and the wisdom that is liberating 
are come together. It's not that there's one and then the other one arises later. They're simultaneously. So the lamp of wakefulness. And I mentioned the more continual, the brighter that wisdom awareness tends to shine. There's an energetic alchemy that goes on as we sit in the Indian traditions. They call it the development of tapas. You generate meditative heat that begins to burn off the impurities of the mind. You may feel this in your body. So we could say the lamp is the goal, and to keep the lamp lit is the goal. That's why we don't have session where, you know, after the break we just go have tea and socialize together or whatever. The idea is the continuity. It's one way that the power of practice can build. Is you just keep, it's like you just keep turning that crank. Even when you don't feel like it, oh, when the last thing you want to do is make any effort whatsoever, if you can at least just... Well, the good thing is the schedule and the sangha kind of turn you. Dogen Zenji said, sometimes you turn the Dharma wheel and sometimes the Dharma wheel turns you. So the cord is a good image for something that connects something. You want to be connected to, to sound. And the plug staying in the wall is active intent. So when intent slips, now what comes first? Does intent slip or does the karmic mind leap in? Or does the karmic mind leap in and overpower intent? Is this a chicken and egg question? One with the sound of the rain, all of a sudden I'm eating a bowl of Fruit Loops. Did my desire to wake up slip, kind of get out of gear? Or did the desire overwhelm it? I don't know if it matters, it might. So the intent of wakefulness, the plug comes out and the light starts to go out. And then all the habitual mind just leaps, this leaps right back in. One of the most helpful things I I heard regularly from Shoto Harada Roshi was, as soon as there's a gap, ego appears. Plain and simple. As soon as there's a gap in practice, ego appears. Sometimes that ego is very subtle. So the plug slips out of the socket because intention, effort, intention slash effort, you get me, slips, and then we slide back into the habit body and we're distracted. Okay. And just putting that plug back in relentlessly. And one period of sitting is a thousand times of this, maybe. Eventually it will be less and less. The progression of practice could be viewed as longer and longer it just stays in the socket. It just stays lit until some point where it's kind of effortless. 
or effort is, is more subtle. It feels relentless at first, and then it just feels like steady discipline. And then maybe some of us may already be there. This may be something that takes time. It, this sublimates into devotion. It's no longer some kind of work or frustrating thing to plug back in or to come back into the practice. It's just like, that's what you want. It's, it's quite a lively to be plugged in. There's, not, there's really not much else as good as that. And so it's... Uh, one becomes animated by love. So let me indulge a technicality of meditation for the benefit of some folks. An aspect of mind being developed in this particular kind of listening practice, which is one of its beauties, is clarity or illumination. The illumination that Hungzhir, Master Hungzhir was talking about in the noon chant that quality of illumination. Yeah, the Chinese would call it illumination. Uh, the Indian tradition would call it the vipassana, seeing. In the sense of listening, there's a high fidelity quality to it. We are um, making more subtle the ear consciousness. As we practice, we're removing dross. We're removing the dirt of dullness from our lamplight. Can you imagine, have you ever kind of gone into your attic and seen an old lamp and there's kind of crust over the bulb and you turn it on and it's, there's light, but it is actually just shrouded by the dirt or kind of a college dorm situation where nobody cleans anything. So here's why this is important. The habit body's accumulated wishes to not fully be here and to be awake becomes a kind of dimness of consciousness. From the Buddha's point of view, this may have been going on for lifetimes. And so there's a lot of dirt. Let me say that again. The habit body's accumulated wish to not really be here in this moment becomes a kind of dimmed-down consciousness. This world is harsh. There are some realms it ta would take a saint to not retreat inwardly into a dialed-down vitality of consciousness. There are some realms, who would want to be present to them? And all of us have been in the kind of realms, why would you want to be present to that unless you had a deep vow? Why wouldn't you want to dim down your consciousness? And some people have nervous systems that are more sensitive than others. A weird thing, you can never know anyone else's mind or nervous system or body. I think you can never really know it. But it seems that way, that some people are, are much more sensitive. So this um, habit may have been um, survival or necessary in some situations. 
So hearing practice brings clarity back, vitality back into consciousness. Dull consciousness will pick up on fewer sounds than consciousness with the energy of clarity. There are probably 10 sounds right now. But consciousness has to be, the clarity aspect has to be increased in order for there to be that kind of sensitivity. Increasing the subtlety and diversity in the soundscape, it will likely support more samadhi, but it's actually not just some kind of audio, audiophile trip or some kind of just sensual thing. Because if we cultivate this, when consciousness wants to dim down, kind of wants to retreat into oblivion, do you know what I mean? We're purifying one of the three coverings. The three coverings are indifference or ignorance. You can use those interchangeably. Grasping and anger. Right? And one description of the path is just purify the three coverings. Just remove the three coverings and there's Buddha nature. So this becoming more sensitive, dialing up the clarity of consciousness is very meaningful. We're counteracting a deep force to disconnect from life. Because that same retreat into oblivion that can happen sitting here probably does happen and can happen in other experiences in our life. I think this is a pretty safe place to work with increasing clarity. So to increase this clarity factor, occasionally inquire, is there any sound I'm not picking up on? Especially if you are, you're doing sound practice and you feel like, I don't, there's nothing to listen to. That might just be habitual mind. Just ask, is there anything I'm not hearing? You get a little bit more, more careful and more uh, full spectrum. It's, if you could imagine a multi-channel mixing board, you've probably seen on TV and movies these studio boards with the, with the faders, right? And each of those channels is a different sound that, you can, that a, mic, a producer mixer turns up or down. Sometimes this is like unmuting a channel that we forgot was muted. That's ignorance. We, for whatever reason, have a tendency to ignore, to not include aspects of the very moment that's happening. So you get curious, is there any sound I'm not picking up on? And all of a sudden the drip in the corner leaps into reality. This clarity, this absence of the covering of ignorance also has a, a positivistic side. Both Hakuin Zenji and um, Hongzhir both say to shine through obstructions, to beam through all gloom. It's one thing that Master Hongzhir says. It's this. It's this quality of presence of mind being un obstructed by phenomena that are arising.
you probably don't need to think of this about being a Dharma hero, that you're never going to get overwhelmed by some kind of emotion or feeling. That would probably not be helpful for most of us to not be overwhelmed by feelings ever. But this some being presence is much less smothered by the clouds of emotion, mood, and feeling. Clarity is stability. It's arising from the deep. This is an increased ability to stay awake within the difficult, to stay awake with the repulsive, and maybe even harder to actually stay awake with the attractive, which that which is pleasant and pleasing. So something lives in the heart that longs for this kind of freedom. Something lives in us that is this freedom and wants to be free, wants to be freed. And at this point in session, it's just coming back over and over to vivid listening with wishlessness, choiceless wakefulness. In the beginning of retreat, sometimes it's sort of like a a cold block of butter on the counter. You thought you were going to make some cookies, but you actually just have to let it sit there for a little while and heat up a little bit. Sometimes you can heat up the knife. Sometimes you can put it in a pan. We can't power our way through this um, process, but we can keep turning back to this basic gesture, just the sound. Tension, meeting, blending into sound. That's it. You can trust that. 